0: Hello and welcome to a special episode. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Pulitzer Prize-winning science journalist, Lori Garrett, one of the world's real experts on global public health issues. And, you know, we seem to be in a moment where that kind of expertise is missing uh, in, in some respects from the top of our government, places where you might want to find it, and you know, much in need. So I'd, I'd like to begin with, Laurie, by asking you where you think we are in the life of this coronavirus story. I'm starting to see some, some articles saying that people think it may be peaking, but again, a lot of what's been written and said about this has been hard to believe or, or, or based on, on wishes more than facts. So wh- wh- where, where do you think we are?
1: The notion that the epidemic is or will peak was based on a mathematics uh, model done by a group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. It was purely speculation, and they were drawing from available Chinese data, which we know is very poor for quite a number of reasons. So there is no evidence at this moment of anything close to a peaking event or even a plateau event anywhere in the world. Every place where this virus has broken out, it's still a growing, expanding problem. The Chinese situation is fully out of control. And the Chinese have tried absolutely everything in their book, including all the devices of repression that are brought to bear by the Communist Party in any crisis, any uh, situation considered destabilizing to Chinese authority, all the way to sort of textbook public health efforts that we would execute here under the same circumstances. Uh, But this virus is defying efforts to control it. And we should keep in mind, as we watch what China's going through, that we would not be able to do almost any of the things they are doing. You know, democracy has a funny way of getting in the way when uh, what's What you think you need to do is to slap everybody under quarantine, stop all movements, cease all freedom of activity and kill off a virus by killing off liberty and freedom in a population. And so we're we we should be watching what's going on in China with great trepidation. Well, certainly
0: that's true on several levels, as you suggest. One of them has to do with the way they they use the tools of authoritarian government in order to manage this. But let's go to the the, the first set of issues, and that has to do with getting to the, the truth of what's going on, because there's been a lot of speculation that the numbers that we're getting out of China are not accurate numbers. And if we don't start with an accurate picture of how big the virus is, how fast it's spreading, where the virus is then it becomes impossible to to really make any of these models work. Are they cooperating with the World Health Organization? Are we getting a clear picture of what's going on there, or is it still a bit of a black box?
1: Well, I think it's very similar to what I observed. I was in the SARS epidemic in China and Hong Kong throughout, and then over the couple of years afterwards, I deliberately made journeys through the SARS hotspots that had recovered in Vietnam, Singapore, Hong Kong, mainland China, Thailand, in order to understand how everybody reacted, what they did, what worked, what didn't work. So I have a fair idea of what the playbook is that China's drawing from right now. There are a lot of differences with the SARS situation. To begin with, the playbook isn't working, and it did work with SARS. But what we saw with SARS that I think we're seeing now in China that makes it especially difficult to interpret events and such things as you're asking about, how accurate are the numbers, is that you have really two governments in China. You have the official titled government, you know, the minister of this and that, the mayor of what's it. And you also have the Communist Party government, which is often in the shadows You may not know who the real puppeteer is in a given political situation. And what we see today is certain kinds of actions being taken by those who feel their allegiance is to a kind of system of governance versus those who feel their allegiance is to Xi Jinping and the Communist Party of China. And so, for example, uh, you can look at activities in cities outside of Wuhan and see the police taking advantage of this epidemic to arrest dissidents, beating the crap out of them in open public spaces without wearing masks, gloves, and so on. You can see people being dragged out of their apartments, kicking and screaming with such strength that it takes four or five people to wrestle them down, which is considerably more strength than you would imagine a sick person would have. You can see people pulled right off the streets and stuffed screaming into tiny steel boxes on the back of pickup trucks. And you can see people dropping dead on the street. You don't know. Did they drop dead from the epidemic? Did they have a heart attack? What happened? Meanwhile, you also see the valiant efforts of Uh, not just the healthcare workers and all the sort of epidemic control volunteers risking their own lives to go out and legitimately bring people into quarantine and run the quarantine centers and so on, but also real government leaders struggling to figure out, what do we do next? We tried plan A that didn't work, plan B didn't work, plan C isn't working, plan D isn't working and on and on down the list. So when you come to the numbers, What you see is a real tension between those who feel there's a narrative they're meant to tell to the Communist Party a sort of a success story or a it's no big deal story or we've got it under control story. And they massage numbers, they hold back on bad news. And then there's those who are really legitimately trying to tell the truth, trying to log the numbers. But they're also the same people trying to treat patients, trying to deal with the epidemic itself and make decisions. They're overwhelmed. And then a final uh, two issues that come to play is that until very recently, everything was focused on people with fevers And there wasn't a lot of attention played to the possibility that people without fevers might even feel well themselves, but could carry virus and give it to others. And we we now know that is occurring, but we don't know how extensive it is. We don't have numbers for those people. We have no idea how many asymptomatic or low symptom patients there may be. And then I think there's a final complication, well, and they're running out of test kits, Many parts of the country really don't have test kits, they're backed up. So you'll know, you see a surge in numbers and you don't know, is that because they just finally got tested or is that because the epidemic is surging? You just don't know. And I'm not sure they know. And then a final issue is because all the hospitals are being taken over by this epidemic and all the healthcare workers are being diverted to this epidemic, people are dying of heart attacks. Um, of lack of care for their cancer, of diabetes, lack of insulin, and supplies, medicines are running out for all sorts of things that have nothing directly to do with the epidemic. We don't have any case counts on all of that. And we may never know what the toll is uh, overall due to the paucity of access to medical care in the hard-hit areas of China.
0: Well, it does then, of course, raise the question of, where this can go, how big this can get. I you know, I think roughly the numbers that we, we have at the moment are, are something like forty thousand cases and nine hundred fatalities. They change on a daily basis.
1: But we, we we've also, actually we've all we're almost at fifty thousand cases and we went over a thousand fatalities today.
0: Okay. So my, the numbers that I just saw this morning are 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 out of date already. But we we're starting to get cases elsewhere in the world. I again I the, what the number I saw this morning was 13 cases in the United States well best guess at the trajectory that this thing might take not just in China but globally uh, or the range of possibilities that we're dealing with here so that people can get some idea of the impacts because I already I mean you know yesterday I saw a famous Wall Street guy Ray Dalio saying well we've already overestimated the impact that this is going to have on the economy it's peaked Things are going to start getting better, you know. Start, you know, investing in the stock market as though this thing is over, and and you know, I found that laughable on several levels. But 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 as you look at it, and as you talk to experts in it, what do, what do you think the those sort of scenarios are that we that that seem likely?
1: Well, certainly today we're hearing from WHO, and I have been saying for two weeks now. I'm not constrained by being part of the UN. I'm a free voice, so I can say the things that I know comrades inside WHO are feeling uh, long before they can. But they today are actually saying out loud, the whole world needs to prepare now for a pandemic. If it doesn't turn into a global pandemic with huge impacts across the planet, well, you know, we may have spent some money getting ready, but we're getting ready and we improved our public health systems in the process. Any country that isn't looking at this and thinking, what would we do How would we respond if something of this scale showed up in our backyard? Well, then that government should be booted out of office because it's just, it's it's immoral and shows a total disregard for your people to not be preparing for the very real possibility that this newly named virus as of about 15 minutes ago awful name. It sounds like a covert operation. COVID-19, C-O-V-I-D-19, is now the name of the virus officially. So here's what I would say. We we run, I would say, three possibilities, and we should know over the next 10 days which one is going to play out. Possibility one is that well over 95 percent of the case burden and deaths remain inside mainland China, that mainland China continues to suffer on many levels for a considerable amount of time, but it in the end is a Chinese epidemic and it plays out according to the rules and regulations of the Chinese government with it ending probably sometime in late May or early June, which is roughly the timetable of SARS. Option number two is that Several of the sites to which it's already spread outside of China have very serious localized epidemics that are spreading completely independently of the original Chinese source and that result in some very dramatic uh, hospitalizations and epidemic measures that have to be taken and increase fears, uh, especially across Asia, possibly affecting the Olympics in Tokyo, um, certainly affecting the initial torch run takeoff in mid-March for the Olympics, and having a really powerful economic effect across the Asian region and for companies deeply connected in the Asian region, but located elsewhere, such as the United States. Option number three is a bona fide pandemic. If the virus spreads down the Belt and Road into Sub-Saharan Africa and into Central Asian countries, up into Russia, it becomes a genuine global threat with genuine um, uh, difficulties and scarcities all over the world. And we see every single aspect of global solidarity put to the test as countries hoard supplies, hoard equipment, hoard medicines, and cut off roads and, ba- and borders, shut down airports, uh, all in vain as the virus continues to spread. So which of these three will it be? I think the bellwether is going to be how this is playing out in Hong Kong and Singapore. These two countries, these two places have already independent spread going on that has nothing to do with mainland China. They are both very, very seasoned, Governments, they went through SARS, they've been through bird flu, they've had their share of epidemics, they've had their share of healthcare workers put in danger and dying trying to treat their patients, and they have very sophisticated healthcare systems. Singapore's is arguably the best system in the entire world. What I've seen in Singapore always makes me deeply embarrassed as an American to compare it to any hospital in the United States. The Singapore system is the state of the art. If Singapore can't stop the spread that is now going on in that country, then I think it's an alarm button ringing loudly for the whole world.
0: The uh, noted healthcare expert D- Donald Trump has said that you know when the weather gets warm, I'm, I have be... to
1: interrupt you and ask you to wash your mouth out with soap after that <laughs> part of the sentence.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, good uh, oral hygiene, I guess. Uh, but but they. has said that, you know, when the weather gets warmer, this is going to be over, so don't worry about it. And then yesterday, he, in the midst of all of this, introduced a federal budget that cuts funding for the WHO by $3 billion. How how would you rate the U.S. response to this so far?
1: Well, not only did yesterday's FY21 White House budget cut w- uh, WHO. It also cuts CDC by 20 percent. It cuts um, our epidemic response systems uh, even more severely than he already did in 2018. It's It seems like utter madness in the face of what's going on. It reflects not only an America first attitude, but an America sense of, you know, capital H hubris. You know, we are the best, we're the smartest, we're the most prepared, and so this little microscopic creature can't do anything to us. Uh, it's just uh, d- divinely arrogant, and I-, I, I think all Americans should be alarmed. Now, will any of that pass through Congress? I, I first of all, none of it will get through the House. His, but his budget is dead on arrival at the House, so it really comes down to to the Senate, and given it's an election year. I suspect no budget's going to get through until after the elections in November. So um, it's kind of a moot point, other than knowing that he will not allocate special resources towards an epidemic response, either internationally or nationally, until it's too late. I suspect money will not flow to the states, certainly not to the states he hates, like New York and California, until it's dire until business interests are screaming at him that uh, it's hurting the bottom line. And by then it'll be too late because as we all know, viruses take advantage of human activities at the very early front end stage of an outbreak and money thrown after the horse is out of the barn is mostly money wasted.
0: Ebola outbreak before the current one, under the Obama administration, as things ramped up a bit, President Obama thought it was worthwhile putting a coordinator in place in the government, and, and he appointed Ron Klein to this job, and Ron began the job of you know, coordinating all the various elements of the government response. Uh, at the same time, uh, this administration has not done anything like that it's in the White House uh, for overseeing this kind of thing. Um, do you think there would be some value, and do you think there's actually necessity for that kind of high-level coordination effort at this point in this crisis, or might it become necessary soon?
1: Well, there's two points. Let me start sort of at the back end of your question first. The worst time to set up a policy response and a government structure is in the middle of the emotional and panic atmosphere of a full-blown epidemic. If you're going to set up an, a structure, a chain of command, a set of um, offices with coordination of some kind, you want to do it before the Uh, epidemic strikes. And so now is is the only time. This is your window of opportunity. You blow this window, and you wait until the whole United States goes into panic mode. And we know how Americans are. I mean, they will be all over the Internet with disinformation, lies. I hate the government. I don't trust anybody. Don't take vaccines. Don't take medicines. Here, buy my bogus snake oil. All this will be going on the second we have actual spread inside the United States, and that is not the atmosphere in which to build a reasonable government response. You want to do it before. Now, the front end of your question, referring to Ron Klain as a sort of epidemic czar inside the White House under the Obama government, um, that all happened because literally uh, about eight weeks after Obama took office, Swine flu broke out, H1N1, in 2009, and it initially looked like it was the big one. Um, It exploded from our uh, pork industry in the Midwest to Mexico and then really exploded out of Mexico. Within six months, it was in every country in in the world. Fortunately, it turned out to be a very, very low virulence influenza, lower than any normal flu, but highly contagious. And Obama got a quick learning lesson on what the agencies were in the government that were responsible for dealing with an epidemic and what happens on the global stage and what hoarding looks like when a whole country says, we won't sell you masks. um, We won't sell you Tamiflu. We won't. And then another country says, we won't let you have vaccine and so on. So then when Ebola came along. He was already he'd already ordered some elements of government to review the 2009 epidemic and look at where the weaknesses were in were in our government structure, and to work with WHO and other international agencies. Along comes uh, Ebola in 2014 in West Africa and. Uh, All faith in the international scale response collapsed as they sat on it and didn't declare an emergency for nine months. Um, And meanwhile, inside his own government, Obama could see that there were far too many agencies that played a role in a global epidemic response in many cases, overlapping or even worse, competing with one another. And there was no overarching system of of control and management of a U.S. response. Uh, And so they invented a whole new way of operating. And some of it worked, some of it didn't, but it was certainly better coordinated than any U.S. engagement in an epidemic ever had been. And then in their after reviews, once the... uh, Ebola epidemic was over, and the U.S. military had pulled out of Liberia, and uh, CDC, USDA, I mean USAID, all the various agencies were back home. Um, they looked and said, "Okay, we need to create some overarching systems that will be in place in our government and in coordination with the international scale going forward." And They worked closely with the World Economic Forum to set up certain structures related to rapid invention and dispersal of vaccines and medicines. They worked with um, uh, the International Gavi, the Vaccine Initiative, to look at how to equitably get vaccines distributed in poor countries as well as rich in a crisis. Um, They set up a a control structure inside the National Security Council, inside the Department of Homeland Security, and inside of Health and Human Services with cross-bridges between them, very active, flowing. All of that was eliminated in 2018 by the Trump administration.
0: Well, you know, that sounds, to use your term from earlier, like utter madness. Um, It certainly sounds like utter madness in the context of what has happened with now, what you reveal is is, is, is known as COVID nineteen, but that's not the only public health crisis going on in the world right now. Um, there is another Ebola outbreak, is there not? In in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, the, the the global public health system is being tested right now, um, in some rather serious ways, um, and so perhaps in the few minutes we've got remaining you could talk a little bit about how it's being tested and and what you know what this might suggest about the future because bad as this is this may not be as bad as it gets right
1: well let's look at, first of all the ebola epidemic going on in north kivu in the democratic republic of congo started in on august 1st 2018 it's still going on today so that tells you right there that a whole lot of tests have been failed. Um, we should have brought this thing under control a long time ago, but of course, when you have more than 130 military operations underway in surrounding your epidemic response with rival groups shooting and slaughtering one another and shooting and slaughtering your healthcare workers, it's very hard to stop an epidemic. And... We're, we see that in that region, essentially, you have a failed state and you have an inability inside the United Nations Security Council to do much of anything about it. Um, so that is a classic case that tells us the issue is not the virus. The issue is humans and how humans behave with each other and whether or not it's possible to actually execute a rational public health response in the middle of an irrational set of human activities. What we see right now in China is not only uh, this COVID-19 virus circulating in human beings, but they now have African swine fever, which has slaughtered about 50% of all pigs, not only in China, but across Asia. So they have a huge deficit in access to pork and pig meat. And then H5N1, the very lethal bird flu that for some types of birds is 100% lethal, has re-emerged and is slaughtering uh, chickens and ducks all across China. So in addition to this horrible primary human epidemic with the coronavirus, we have uh, two big raging epidemics that have both economic consequences for the country and are affecting availability of protein for people under quarantine. And it's interesting to look and see photographs of the delivered food plates that people in quarantine are receiving. Almost none of them have any meat or protein on them. They're all piles of raw vegetables and uh, perhaps bread and that's or a little bit of rice and i understand that rice is also running out so when you look at a situation like this you have to ask when was last time we had 3 4 5 mega epidemics simultaneously in a, in one country um, boy you have to really stretch back in history to name such a such a time and why is this so well There are many reasons that go back to my first book way back in the 90s that I wrote called The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance, a carefully selected title, because I was saying back in the 90s that we were creating conditions as we became a more sort of um, globalized and integrated world population Um, that actually worked in the favor of the emergence of microbes from animals to humans and brought them out of senescence, out of hiding or altogether new, and that they were spreading very rapidly. Well, now we can add another layer on top of that, which is climate change. So it's not a coincidence that most of the lethal new viruses that we have seen emerge in the last 15 years are coming from fruit bats. These are very shy, nocturnal creatures. They are the great pollinators of our rainforests. They are the bees of the rainforests, living high in the top canopies where they bounce around as flocks from one tree to another, eating fruit and in the process pollinating the rainforests. As the rainforests are subjected to deforestation and rising temperatures, you have a loss of the feeding ground uh, for for bats. And they are very stressed as populations all over the world. Everywhere you look, bats are uh, essentially under a kind of environmental siege right now. And as their food sources diminish, they overcome their shyness to come closer to human habitation in order to eat fruit from, say, orchards or to uh, come into barns and uh, rural facilities in search of food inside. And this means that the viruses that they carry, and most bats carry hundreds if not thousands of different species of viruses harmless to them inside their bodies, can be urinated out, can come out on their saliva and then cross infect any other domestic animals that may be present. So NEPA went from bats chewing on food, masticating fruit, and then spitting out the pits and the parts they didn't eat, into pig pens, and the pigs ate that and got the Nipah virus, and that transformed the virus into a form that could readily infect human beings. Ebola is originally a bat virus. Marburg is originally a bat virus. Lyssa, MERS, SARS, and now COVID-19. It's a long list. And we can look at other ways in which climate change is increasing the probability of not only the emergence of d- new diseases, but the spread of those diseases. And uh, I think we're we're toying with Mother Nature in ways that are going to have a blowback for all of us.
0: It's a chilling picture, and I can only imagine some of my more sensitive relatives, my sister who grew up reading the Merck Manual and imagining every disease, for example, uh, in affecting her, are all now cowered under their beds awaiting the cataclysm that, that that seems inevitable here. Do you have any good news for them?
1: Well, the good news is that we do know a lot of ways to conduct appropriate environmental surveillance and to catch outbreaks at their earliest stages and pounce on them before they get to the stage that this COVID-19 is in today. If the Chinese response in Wuhan by the Communist Party leadership there had not been cover-up and had not been to jail the eight physicians that were trying to call attention to it, including the now great martyr, Dr. Li Wenliang, we could have seen control take place, and we would probably never have seen this giant epidemic. We have capacity to pounce. We have training, we have understanding, we know so much more today than we did 20 years ago or even 17 years ago with SARS. And we have a toolkit. We have the ability to to sequence our entire world. And there are many groups out doing, uh, you know, sequencing of, of the DNA of the planet to figure out what's in the DNA of the planet that is potentially dangerous to human beings and under what circumstances, where is it located, how does it move, how do humans become exposed? We have the tools. What we don't have is sufficient level of concern to address these issues in between outbreaks so that we do the research, we fund the science, we build the barriers of protection for the human being population, and we anticipate by creating drugs and vaccines that can address a virus if it emerges. Unfortunately, as Dr. Tedros, the director general of WHO said, uh, almost uh, you know, like a giant plea for humanity, two weeks ago in a press conference, we have to get past only funding in the middle of a crisis. And then dropping all the funding and all the effort when the crisis goes away.
0: For those of you who find this uh, unsettling, I, I I suggest that y- you would not be surprised by much of it had you been following the work of Lori Garrett over the past three decades, as I've been. She has been a extraordinary voice as a science journalist on these things, winning not only the Pulitzer Prize, but Polk Awards and and other recognition for this, and has been setting the stage for events like this for a long, long time. I think one of the subtexts that I take away from the conversation is that some of the things that we talk about here in a purely political context, sometimes in the U.S., about things like democracy, transparency, uh, or even whether or not people believe in in science— or whether leaders choose to acknowledge science or not, are not just political issues in times like these. They are life and death issues, Uh, whether it's the Chinese suppression of transparency or the suppression by leaders in the U.S. of, of funding for scientific research or the lack of foresight to anticipate events like this. And that's what brings us here. As this develops, I encourage you to follow... Lori Garrett, wherever she writes and speaks. And I want to thank you, Lori, for joining us for what has been a very enlightening, if if somewhat uh, disturbing, conversation.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you to the listeners for paying heed.
0: All right. Thank you. And for those of you who would like more on what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com And there you can find our other podcasts and events and uh, other
1: publications and things that we're working on. For now, bye-bye.